If you're a fan of big ideas, debate, and politics, check out our festival partner, Geopolitical Magazine Foreign Policy. A forum for informed debate about global affairs, foreign policy keeps a finger on the pulse of world news and political happenings. Beyond articles that delve behind the headlines via traditional reporting, Foreign Policy has so many other products to offer, ensuring that no matter how you like to engage with eye-opening content, there is a method for you. Check out their free offerings, like Foreign Policy Live, their forum for live journalism, newsletters, and podcasts. And with a subscription, unlock in-depth features and quarterly magazines, including their recently dropped spring edition, All About India. Fans of IAI will love Foreign Policy for more of the mind-expanding, insightful content that they seek. To explore their content, take advantage of an exclusive discount for IAI fans. Subscribe now using promo code LIGHT24 to save 50% and unlock access to everything Foreign Policy has to offer. Welcome to Philosophy for Our Time. Facts of assertions. From the Institute of Art and Ideas. We examine every aspect of contemporary thinking. What is love? Is it real? Is democracy illusory and incoherent? Finding cracks in the way we understand the world. I think there is a crisis of values. Realism has failed. We debate the way forward with today's leading thinkers. We're all trying to understand what the hell is going on. A live podcast production from the Institute of Art and Ideas. From writing to art, the intense to the light-hearted, imagination transports us to untold fantasy worlds. Yet Picasso claimed everything you can imagine is real. Should we dismiss this as the overblown claims of a celebrity artist? Or might what we take to be reality actually be the product of imagination? So to discuss those questions, we have Terry Eagleton, and he's the author of many books, was described as an ineluctable part of British intellectual culture. Paul Bogosian is Silver Professor of Philosophy at NYU, and his publications include Fear of Knowledge. And Joanne Harris is a novelist. She's written, at the last count, 14 novels, including the award-winning Chocolat. So I'd like to ask Terry to kick us off, please. I want, perhaps rather tiresomely, to take a strike an original posture by attacking the concept of the imagination, which at least has a virtue of rarity, since particularly for literary and artistic types, there's not a bad word to be said about it. And this always strikes me as quite extraordinary. You know, the imagination is one of those inherently positive terms for so many people, <coughs> like, um, though, you know, always be suspicious of those phrases and concepts which nobody seems to disagree with, you know, like, um, have another Guinness, for example, yeah. you know, <laughs> or uh, let's shoot the Duke of Edinburgh. <laughs> Or, you know, phrases like Nelson Mandela, you know, who's prepared, you know, hands up, those who are prepared to say a bad word. Very suspect, isn't it, when one has these concepts treated so reverentially and uncritically, as in literary circles, at least, the concept of the imagination is. I mean, the ludicrous idea that the imagination is somehow inherently positive and creative and so on. I mean, serial killing requires quite a lot of imagination. I can tell you. Uh, genocide. Finding new and fiendish and more subtle ways of exploiting and manipulating and oppressing people requires a tremendous amount of imagination, but it doesn't ever get applauded in literary circles. I mean, rarely has a pretty ordinary psychological faculty been so fetishized by literary 
an artistic time. Imagination is an extraordinarily mundane affair, isn't it? I mean, to raise a glass to your lips requires a degree of imagination. You have a dim image of it actually succeeding and reaching your lips and so on, culled from past experience. Nothing very grandiose, nothing transcendent about it, but at a certain point, fairly easy to identify historically, it becomes a transcendent faculty, a quasi-divine faculty indeed, creation ex nihilo. It has a theological subtext, but before then, in the 18th century, the imagination has a rather discreditable history. In the 18th century, it's really the flip side of possessive individualism. If, on a certain empiricist view, we can never really know each other other than, you know, having sense data so-called of one another, then maybe to know each other properly, you know, to empathise with each, other, inner, each other's innards, so to speak, we have need of a special faculty call it intuition or moral sense or the aesthetic or the imagination, which will carry us, so to speak, out of the thick walls of our bodies into the innards of somebody else. A most curious model of human dialogue, to be sure, but one which empiricism more or less forces upon people, so that the imagination begins as a response to our natural indifference to one another. We're naturally warned, walled off from each other by our senses and we need some kind of lifeline which can stretch beyond that and this particular rather special and quirky faculty is thought up which by let's say 1780s or certainly around 1800 when romanticism is in full swing has now become a full-blown transcendental capacity floating sublimely over reality and increasingly in its creativity a refuge from an alternative to a society which is becoming very notably uncreative. Romanticism and the Industrial Revolution so-called are born at a stroke and there are many senses in which this fetishizing and inflating of this rather modest faculty of imagination is a response to an increasingly uncreative society. For the radical romantics, one should be doing something about that. Yes, for Shelley and Blake, that the imagination is a kind of politics. The imagination is a political force because it will transform reality in practice. By the time of, let's say, Tennyson, that has ceased to happen. The imagination is now, as it were, an alternative world an alternative world to reality and therefore provides a kind of ersatz or compensatory creativity to a society which is less and less creative and that means it acts as ideology. Let me just end by saying a word about fantasy. Again, we often think, don't we, of fantasy as a kind of alternative world to the real. If Freud is to be credited, that's not true at all. Indeed, for Freud, in a certain sense, what we call reality, everyday reality, is constituted by certain central fantasies, deeply unconscious fantasies, which as it were set the frame for that reality. But also fantasy, the imagination is, as I say, seen as a very elevated and edifying faculty, whereas actually it's unnervingly close to fantasy and fantasy is a very infantile affair. I don't of course use the word infantile pejoratively, but if you think of the imagination in Freudian terms rather than in romantic idealist terms, then poets are those who are still entranced by a kind of sensuous babbling. Yes. 
And to that extent, you know, what's meant to be one of the most elevated of faculties is actually, in very interesting ways, one of the most regressive. Just as sexuality is not where we're most mature, it's where we're most infantile. John. Well, speaking for my people, I think I tend to disagree in the idea of romanticised imagination. I don't think it has been romanticised. I think it's been, to a certain extent, misunderstood. I think possibly profoundly misunderstood and also demonised and, and made into something that it's not. At a certain point in life, imagination is considered a good thing. Children are encouraged to be imaginative because clearly it, it develops intelligence and it develops empathy. And then there is a cut-off point at which we are told, that, that's it, you are grown up now, you have to put childish things aside. I have always argued that these divisions are completely arbitrary and quite harmful, that in fact... The world of the imagination and the inarticulate and the unexpressed subconscious is something that not only drives us when we're children, where we, we're not quite sure of where the parameters of reality and dream are actually set, but they also follow us off into adulthood and they come out in interesting and sometimes unnoticed ways. I would say that the power of the imagination, far from being small, is overwhelmingly large, but we, we don't really understand its workings because that right-hand brain is inarticulate and without language and without logical thinking and, and it doesn't often communicate with the, the left-hand brain which is all about language and working things out and things being logical and sometimes the idea of getting one to communicate with the other is quite a challenge and so we tend to as adults often put the right brain aside completely and go well do you know what all that is messy and incomprehensible and I'm going to pretend it's not there and this is, I think, where that funny line in the dust that has been drawn between adulthood and childhood tends to get blurred. I believe that we benefit from exploring the powers of the imagination, not romanticising them or making them into, into something necessarily wonderful, because, as you said, imagination can take you anywhere. It can take you into dark places. It can take you into, into brighter ones. But imagination, I think, is the one thing that separates us from other species. We have no proof that animals have any imagination at all or that they have any sense of what is possible or impossible. They see what they see, they experience the immediacy of their lives, they have no fear of death, they have no idea of the future. All these things are contained in the imagination and I think that it is in some way the language of the unspoken subconscious which is emerging when we use our imagination, we are, we're not exploring fantasy worlds that don't exist. We are looking at different aspects of our own world that do exist, but which for us exist within kind of metaphorical constraints, things that trouble us that we are not happy to articulate to ourselves or to other people. We explore them within these kind of safe places of metaphor. This is where imagination comes in. It allows us to, to process the things which our rational mind and our articulate selves are not really able to process in a normal way. So if I were to dispute anything at all, I think it is the existence of reality as opposed to the existence of imagination. I think that reality and imagination are in the same space. I don't think that we have any way of objectively being able to quantify reality because for all of us, reality is filtered through experience. And experience is different for every person in the room, for every person in the world. Um, the reality of somebody living in Africa right now may be so different from our own and from the way we perceive 
our own human experience that they might as well be on Mars or in Tolkien's Middle Earth or, or in a small planet somewhere in the vicinity of Betelgeuse. For all its reality to us, it might as well be fantasy. And so what is real? What is imagined? All we've got is the kind of quantum leap that we as human beings can try to make towards the human experience of other human beings. And I think that has to be driven by empathy. And imagination is a vehicle that drives that. And as such, I would say that without it being the solution to the world's ills, it is certainly solution number one to the lack of empathy, which rather than the lack of creativity seems to have permeated this current century. We are all increasingly connected electronically and increasingly isolated personally from each other and we feel increasingly unnecessary and unregarded within the fabric of the society. I think imagination, empathy and to a certain degree fantasy and story is the solution to this. Um, Paul, is everything we can imagine real? No. Okay, uh, we can imagine lots and lots of things. In fact, one of the primary uses of the imagination is to imagine things that are possible but not actual. To say they're possible but not actual is to say that they don't exist, but they might have existed under certain conditions. So uh, it is uh, absolutely wrong to say I can well imagine that I'm either president of the United States or that I have a million dollars in my pocket uh, none of that would be true. Second question, is everything real the product of imagination? Because that's what comes when you equate the two things. No. Okay. To make it the product of imagination would mean that some human being capable of the human mental act of imagining brought it about that this thing existed, and we know perfectly well that lots of things existed before any human beings were around. If things existed before there were human beings, that means that they weren't the product of active imagination. In fact, they weren't the product of any mental acts. They existed independently of mental acts. Now, does imagination in some sense create reality? Well, you know, there is a sense in which it creates reality. It doesn't create it directly, okay? But it can create it when it's mediated by the intentions of a competent human being. So what happens is that you imagine things that do not exist and do not easily look like they might have existed. I suppose the iPhone would be an example of this. And then, having imagined this thing, you bring it about that it exists by manipulating your intentions and the intentions of lots and lots of other people, lots of creative people. One of the reasons for not denouncing the imagination in quite the, the virulent terms that I heard Terry do is that by definition it is the source of human creativity. When we talk about imagination we're talking about things that we do not currently have and we don't see how to put together in some way in which we have seen other things combined. Okay, A real exercise of the imagination is required for Bach for after him Mozart, for after him Beethoven, and so on, to imagine new languages of expression and new ideas by which uh, to express using musical medium. Just to give one simple example, maybe there has been a tendency to overly fetishize and overly romanticize this, but if we're simply taking a sensible look at the role of the imagination in human life, well, since it is 
typically the fount of human creativity. I don't think we want to go too far in denigrating it. But it also has, as I think Terry pointed out, much more mundane uses. In the United States, you will often see politicians running for office saying they don't answer hypothetical questions. Well, this is not true. Everybody answers hypothetical questions, and we're always in the business of what, assessing what philosophers like to call counterfactuals. What would happen if? What would happen if I didn't leave immediately after this session is over? I'd probably miss my train. What would happen if I knocked this glass? Would it break? No, it's plastic, so on and so forth. So these counterfactuals are extremely important for predicting the course of action, the course of human life, and you could not get by without them. In fact, all of science is based on coming up with generalizations that will support counterfactuals. And the way in which you find out which counterfactuals are true is to simply imagine that the circumstance in the antecedent has obtained and see what you imagine the consequent to be, where that is constrained by what you know about the, about, about the world. Terry, Paul just said, and this is the view that Joanne defended very strenuously as well, that the imagination is the source of human creativity. Are they just trafficking in the myth you were denouncing? No, no, I would agree with that, I think. As far as the idea that we construct reality, somebody recently said that there is no such thing as objective reality. There are simply stories, imaginative constructs, interpretations and so on. This was the woman who is the head of the Russian state propaganda television station. And what she meant, of course, by that was, well, some people are epistemologically naive enough to think that Vladimir Putin really does murder his political opponents, or that Pussy Riot really is oppressed, but it's just a set of stories. The denial of reality in that sense can be politically, I think, highly reactionary. And those postmodernists who leap on the, as it were, anti-truth or anti-reality bandwagon, astonishingly to me, seem never to realize that. That some modest workable conception of truth is necessarily associated with an equally modest conception of justice, yes? And therefore with political action. I began by attacking the imagination. I'll now attack empathy, if you don't mind. <laughs> yeah. um, uh, I'm deeply suspicious of any ethics which is based upon empathy. That's not to say, of course, there's not a role for empathy, it doesn't mean anything. It just isn't to me true that in order to behave properly and justly and, and generously, you have to feel what somebody's feeling. In, it, it's irrelevant. You know, you don't have to f know what it's like to have your leg bitten off by a shark to come to the rescue of somebody who has. <laughs> you know, this is a terribly literary, again, notion of, you know, uh, um, it's very central, say, to George Eliot, who, who, who's, uh, who I admire enormously, but whose ethics are very much based upon a rather suspect kind of imagination or uh, uh, empathetically imaginative basis. Empathy is neither here nor there. Joanne, empathy... It's woolly, we don't need, we don't, you're confusing empathy with the notion of justice, Terry says. No, I'm not. Um, I make a strong distinction between different forms of empathy. There is specific empathy, which is what it feels like to have your leg bitten off by a crocodile, for instance. And then there is general empathy, which is a shared and relatively small reservoir of human feelings, which we sometimes attribute to other people. And sometimes we cut off 
our empathy to other people because by seeing them as other and enemy, it is easier not to feel for them at all. And this is the empathy I'm talking about, as opposed to specific empathy, which is about specific experiences. No, I wouldn't expect you to know what being bitten by a crocodile was like. However, I would expect normal human beings to understand what human suffering was like, or human joy, or human love. And these are the kinds of empathy that I'm talking about. And these, I think, are at the heart of that kind of imaginative thinking. I don't think empathy is, is wishy-washy, middle-class piffle. On the other hand, we have to examine exactly what we mean by it. Mm. You, talk, you talk about, you just talk about uh, feeling, feeling for the other and not seeing the other as an enemy. Sometimes the other is an enemy. Sometimes, Sometimes they are, the yes. Other, and, but, this is, Agreed. It, but this is not often said, Joanna, in, in saying this. There are, there are kinds of others that we must at all costs combat neo-fascists, racists, all kinds of people, horrible people. And I think that the, em the ethic of empathy genuinely does become sentimental when this undifferentiated other is to be empathised with. Sadists are empathists. Sadists like to know what their victims are feeling. Yeah, that's why they're sadists. There's nothing intrinsically positive about knowing what somebody is feeling. All right, can I just add to what I said then? I take completely on board what you're saying, that some people are enemies and that some people are doing bad things and that we shouldn't tolerate this. On the other hand, I think there is something profoundly self-deceptive about the idea that because somebody is, let's say, a fascist or a sadist or um, a Nazi or a terrorist, that they are a negative that we can push away. I think the really uncomfortable truth is the undercurrent of, of shared humanity there because actually, yes, the Nazis did love their children and sometimes people who do bad things or believe bad things or promote bad thoughts have exactly the same loves and passions as we do and it's, it's actually profoundly uncomfortable to face up to this. It's much easier to go, they are the enemy and therefore this is where the imagination comes in. It's not about embracing their ideas at all. It's accepting that we are all human and we are all capable of terrible things if pushed into certain places. Do you want to hear more from the world's leading thinkers? If the answer to that question is yes, subscribe to iai.tv for unlimited access to thousands of debates, talks, articles, academy courses and live events. Are you bored of the surface level news, politics, sports and entertainment coverage on your newsfeed? Go deeper. Get the philosophy behind the news and get the latest big ideas from the world's leading thinkers on subjects at the core of the human condition, life, the universe and everything in between. It's free for the first month and there's no commitment to pay, so subscribe now to understand the world beyond the surface level. Paul, it's interesting that both Joanne and Terry, uh, in their discussion of imagination, that discussion has devolved almost um, ineluctably onto moral, moral mm. questions and political yes. questions. Do you see any role absolutely. for imagination in our moral lives? Absolutely, absolutely. And in fact, I'm going to agree with both of my distinguished colleagues. There is this thing called empathetic understanding, which doesn't in and of itself have a valence, that is a, a, an ethical consequence. You put yourself in somebody else's shoes. This could be an enemy. In fact, one of the best ways of understanding how to defeat your enemy is to understand how things look from their perspective. Yes. So empathetic understanding, and this does involve a real act of the imagination, is trying to put yourself right into the perspective of the people who seek to uh, attack you. For instance, one of the problems was 
in post 9-11 in the United States is that whenever anybody said, well, look, look, let's try to see what it was that was animating these people to, to this level of hostility, people would think that's a way of justifying it. No, it's not a way of justifying it. On the contrary, it's a way of understanding. But I think one of the points that Terry was making that I, I very much agree with is that you are often in a position to recognize what truths about justice or fair play or morality obtain, even if you're not in a position to empathize with the subject that you're making the judgment about. It's very hard, isn't it, to convince some people that to understand is not necessarily to condone. Yes. And this is the point, that really, is Paul exactly. is, is making. Whenever anybody, say on Newsnight or whatever, puts in a word, as it were, but let us understand terrorism, the interviewer almost always says, but that sounds as though you're excusing it. But that is not the same as the liberal platitude, uh, tout comprendre, c'est tout pardonner. Mm -hmm. To understand everything is to forgive everything. Uh, absolutely not. But, you know, that is, that is one notion of empathy. If only we could understand better, then we wouldn't necessarily forgive. On the contrary, to feel more closely and intensely what somebody's feeling maybe leads you to condemn them more. Yes. And that's not often pointed out by the purveyors of empathy. Paul made the point in his opening remarks that we can't get along without imagining counterfactuals. You were talking specifically about scientific... Ordinary and, and artistic. Uh, artistic uh, practice. But it's true in politics as well, isn't it? I mean, there is a, there's a politically good version of the imagination because any emancipatory project Im yeah. requires the imagination. You know, another yeah. world is possible. Yes. So there, there, are, there are good and bad There versions, are good and bad, yes. Yes, there, there's the whole question, for example, Johnson, of utopia, mm. isn't there? I mean, and there's good and bad utopia. There are forms of utopia which are really merely displacements from the business of getting on with whatever politics we need. And there are forms of utopia which do dare to imagine in a very yeah. positive way. It's interesting that Marx is notoriously opposed to utopian thinking, but I think on very interesting grounds. Marx thinks that the utopian schemes we might dream up are bound to be in some way extrapolations from the present and therefore not radical mm. enough. There must mm. be a discontinuity between the language of the present and the language of the future. Mm. Marx says in the 18th Brumaire about the future, the socialist future, there he says the content will go beyond the form. So utopian language, rather like poetic language, is straining to intimate something that it can't by definition represent. Joanne, I'd like to get back to this question of fantasy in the imagination. It's striking that the 18th century philosophers and poets Terry is, is talking about used to use the words fantasy and imagination interchangeably. And you seem to be suggesting that fantasy and imagination, that's a distinction without a difference for you, Joanne, if I understand. No, I don't think it's a distinction without a difference, but I, I think that they are related subjects. Just going back to what Terry was saying for just a moment, it's interesting that you came up with the 17th century as being a relatively unimaginative period because it seems to me that it was a period of tremendous expansion and of broadening horizons. It was the time when people were dreaming of other worlds mm. and finding yeah, them. Yeah. And just, this to me was a great sorry. intuitive leap from what yeah. they'd had previously. I just meant that they, that's true. I just meant they didn't have the same concept of the imagination historically as we do and we shouldn't generalise and universalise no. a very historically particular concept of the imagination. And yet uh, they were fanciful. Oh yes. yes and they, they had just absolutely. at that point... I think because they were explorers, they had just rediscovered 
what they considered to be Viking culture and they had created a whole kind of alternative history, which still endears even now, even though we're realising that, that they probably made nearly all of it up. Um, Paul, do you see, I mean, how do you understand and unpack this, this distinction between fantasy and its cognates and Im- imagination? I will say, before trying to answer that, that we have talked a lot about the imagination that we haven't really offered an account of what it is and that would be one way of both getting at what this distinction might be between imagination and fantasy but also to draw out Terry a little bit more about what he takes to be these kind of overly rich conceptions that there have been of this basic core notion and if I were to try to give I mean it's a very complicated subject if you look at it but we we seem to have a basic core idea that imagining something First of all, it does involve conjuring up a certain kind of mental representation. And the, the certain kind of mental representation is partly characterized in distinguishing it from perception, where when you perceive something, you take what you perceive to be real. Whereas when you imagine something, you don't take yourself necessarily to be imagining something real, though maybe you are. Like maybe you imagine a golden mountain. There is, in fact, a golden mountain. But, that's, but you don't necessarily take it that the object of your imagining is real. And then in contrast with, for instance, conceiving and supposing, which are very closely related ideas, there appears to be a quasi-sensory aspect to the mental representation when imagining is involved as opposed to just conceiving. So that, for me, is the core notion. Mm. And I'm, I'm wondering, mm. in what sense do you think there have been overly enriched conceptions of this? It's not, exactly, it's not, not exactly overly enriched, Paul. Mm. I, I don't think I used that phrase. It's just, well, let's say inflated yeah. notions, okay. where the imagination becomes something of an imperial force in a certain way. It gobbles up more and more of reality and doesn't necessarily take the strain of the object in that way. That's very, that's very true of a certain kind of, of the more solipsistic kinds of romanticism. Some of Coleridge, for example, where really nothing has in- inherent value until and unless it's imbued by the power of mind. A straight kind of idealism, which Coleridge calls pinches from the German ideas. As far as the distinction between fantasy and imagination mm. goes, think of the mm. distinction between dreams and works of art. Dreams are fantasies. Although, notice that for Freud, these are fantasies in which the truth is more available. This plays to Joanna's point, I think. One of the remarkable facts about dreams and fantasies for Freud is this is where you're likely to get images and insights into the truth of the subject, as opposed, say, to the ego, where you won't get that. But works of art resemble dreams in some ways, but they're much more shaped. They're much more the work of the will, involve the work of the will, the work of the ego, the active shaping faculties and so on. So I would approach it in that sort of yeah. way. Joanne, do works of imagination, of the literary imagination, then put us in touch with the truth in that way, that, that view that Terry's attributing to Coleridge and the, the Yes, I, I sort of, although, of course, Coleridge's probably most famous work actually was directly translated from a dream. But, yes, I, I mean, I tend to think of it in this way. I don't think we can conceive of anything imaginatively, that does not already exist, at least in part or in parts, in reality. I think reality is our language and imagination is what we then do with it. And so if you imagine a Lego set, the blocks are already there. The blocks are reality. What you then do with the blocks are imagination and you can build anything you like, but the blocks are still made of reality. They are still there and when you deconstruct them and you take them back into their component parts, what you've got is elements of the real. So you're imagining that you were president of America 
obviously it's not true, you're not empathising with the president, but you know what a president is, you know what America is, and you can imagine putting the two together and putting yourself in the picture in the same way. You can pretty much do anything as long as the elements that you are using for your construction, however fancifully and elaborately built it is, are based on real. Which is why when we read fantasy and science fiction, the characters that we follow and that we empathise with, because in story much of the interaction between writer and reader is about empathy, are all human characters, or characters who behave like humans. Even in a book like Watership Down, where all the characters are rabbits, we are still empathising with them on a human level. We're understanding them on a human level, they're communicating on a human level, because ultimately stories are human things. Paul, do you want to comment on that idea that reality is a constraint on what we're capable of imagining? Yeah, I mean, I think often the exercise of the imagination does consist in that kind of combinatorial reshuffling. But in fact, I think great scientific breakthroughs cannot be described in those ways. And that was Kuhn's point in, in the structure of scientific revolutions, that when you look at these major paradigm shifts, you get concepts cropping up that you simply can't define in terms of the previous vocabulary. Th this is a kind of feat of the imagination of creativity we simply don't understand. What we understand is where you take the bits that are already there and you reshuffle them. But, you know, relativistic mass is a, a kind of breakthrough <laughs> in thinking that you can't describe in those combinatorial terms. So that's, in, in fact, fact yeah. the greatest feats, I think, of the imagination are of that kind. We really don't understand how that works. The combinatorial model, you know, ironically, is, I think, Coleridge's notion of the fancy uh, and not the imagination. Uh, and rightly or wrongly, Coleridge sees that sort of shuffling of the given units and so on uh, as a somewhat mechanical, aggressive activity. So he was borrowing Kant's notion of the productive. Yes, the product, or if you like, the word I suppose is transformation, yeah. isn't it? That, which may not, again, uh, equate exactly be adequate to the situation Paul's describing of a kind of quantum leap. But certainly for that romantic tradition, what distinguishes imagination from fancy is that it actually transforms in some active way the elements it's using. And that is one reason why it can become a political, there can be a political mm. analogue of it as well. Mm. You can yeah. translate it from the aesthetic to the political sphere, because if you want to look for a work of imagination around the time of Romanticism, look at the French Revolution. Look at the American Revolution, uh, where reality is being moulded and transformed and recast before your very eyes by, by what? By desire? By imagination? By some kind of creative force? Whatever you call it. Well, by the desire to make a different world. Yes, but not a separate world. So, Paul, social reality, if I can use that phrase, is susceptible to being moulded and transformed by imagination. Yes, in fact, I think, to start with, psychological reality. Does the imagination produce reality or, or intervene and construct reality? And I think in cases where, and there are such psychological notions, where in order to be a certain kind of person, you've got to think of yourself as being that kind of person, and to get yourself to think of yourself as being that kind of person, you've got to imagine yourself being that kind of person. And that, when you do that, that brings it about or contributes to bringing it about that you are that kind of person. So in the case of psychological self-constitution, I think imagination can actually play that kind of constructive role. I don't think it plays it vis-a-vis, -vis, as it were, external objects in the way that many constructivists think. But there is a limited application for it. Now that, since social entities and social notions are themselves compounded out of psychological ones, plus further stuff, I think it does have a role to play in the constitution of, of social reality. Well, yep. Terry, at the risk of lunging for soggy consensus, I think there is some agreement on the political role that the imagination plays. Well, yes, but I think the danger 
but let me put it this way crudely, you can get too transformative. Yeah. <laughs> uh, transformation is another hurrah word, isn't it? You know, everybody gives the <laughs> sign of the cross when they're creative, <laughs> transcendent, transformation. I, again, we have to distinguish. I would say that advanced capitalism, postmodern capitalism, ha has pushed the notion of transformation to a hubristic point. That's to say where reality has to be clay in one's hands, to, and not least the, the famous body has to be, to be pummeled, molded, inscribed, changed. Uh, the whole universe becomes a kind of plastic surgeon's parlour, where the scandal of nature, and this is one reason why postmodernists don't like talking about nature or essences, or those horrible vampire-like things, is because they're, because <laughs> they're resistant to the imperial will. The other side of this apparently attractive, endlessly pliable, mutable, protean world is the imperial will that's stamping its form on it. Mm. And that's not often said by postmodernists. So you can have too much of transformation. It is very striking that now you, you mentioned the Russian case. Is it you mentioned the Russian case. Mm. Yeah. Of course, we had not just Bush, but Rumsfeld, who at one point during the Iraq war said, forget reality, we create our own reality. Mm. And so now, on both sides of what you would have thought was a political divide, people are buying in on this kind of constructivist imagery, precisely because it's a very good expression it of the imperial It doesn't matter will. too much, Paul, when it's yeah. confined to harmless no, no, types like literary no. people <laughs> or philosophers. <laughs> but when it's in the White House yeah, yeah. or the Kremlin. But you have, you have to understand, this is not just a false view. It is an immediately refutable view via resources that we have known about forever because... If you say, we create our own reality, so everybody can create a reality suitable to them, that is presented as itself simply true <laughs> and not perspectival. And that is a refutation of the view. It really is as, as good as it gets. We hope you enjoyed this podcast, which was brought to you by the Institute of Art and Ideas. Which side of the debate did you fall? Let us know by tweeting at IAI underscore TV hashtag imagination. If you would like to hear more from Terry Eagleton, then you might enjoy our At The World's Edge debate, now available on the IAI TV player. If you want to listen to more episodes, then subscribe to the Philosophy For Our Times podcast on iTunes, SoundCloud or Stitcher for more big ideas on the go. Tune in to our next episode to hear more about the role of risk in society. Thank you.